Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Since December 2019, COVID has presented a global challenge, especially in the absence of definitive treatment among critically ill patients with severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2. While the management of these patients primarily focuses on provision of supportive care, low-dose systemic corticosteroids, antivirals, and immunomodulators have been encouraged as therapeutic adjuncts. Fast forward to July 2021, and the US FDA broadened the emergency use authorization for baricitinib for the treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized pediatric and adult patients. Today, my good friend, Dr. Ariana Boudre-Nunn, explores the clinical data justifying baricitinib's emergency use authorization and its role in treating COVID-19. 200,000, that is the number that has been exceeded regarding the number of articles that have been published on the role of therapy in, pharma- the role of therapy in SARS-CoV-2. As clinicians, we have seen that the role of therapy has evolved rapidly, including the repurposing of immunomodulators. Over the next hour, it is my hope to help you better understand the role of immunomodulatory therapy in COVID-19, as well as to be able to extract the meaningful data from, extract the meaningful, meaningful findings from the clinical data that will be discussed so that you may be able to determine whether or not baricitinib is appropriate for the patients that you serve. Prior to delving into the data, let's briefly review the pathogenesis of COVID-19. SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus that is transmitted through respiratory droplets. Upon entry into the body, it undergoes local replication and propagation. About one-fifth of patients end up with with a severe infection in which cytokines and inflammatory markers are released. These inflammatory markers and cytokines include granulocyte colony stimulating factor, interferon gamma, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, of which is the most contributory to the hyperinflammatory response, as well as tumor necrosis factor alpha. Upon the, release of these, upon the release of these factors, we see systemic neurologic, cardiac, pulmonary, hepatic, renal, and vascular inflammation. Due to those being noted, this precipitated the search for immunomodulators. The four immunomodulators that we will discuss today include baricitinib, tocilizumab, serolumab, and anakinra. All of these agents, which have been FDA-approved for rheumatoid arthritis and various um, anti-inflammatory conditions. Baricitinib is an oral Janus kinase 1 and 2 inhibitor. Upon inhibition, its effects impact the signaling of other other cytokines that we see. Tocilizumab is an interleukin-6 inhibitor, which of note, again, is the most contributory to the inflammatory response. Serolumab, while is also an interleukin-6 inhibitor, 
clinical data has shown insufficient evidence to recommend this agent within the patient population that we serve uh, for COVID patients. Similarly, anakinra, which is an interleukin-1 inhibitor, has also shown insufficient evidence to recommend this agent in any of the COVID patients that we see. But not all patients progress to the hyperinflammatory response. It begins with stage one, which is an early infection, and we see the viral response phase predominate there. It progresses to stage two, which is the pulmonary phase, and ultimately stage three, the hyperinflammatory phase. We see signs and symptoms of these specific phases noted below. For the purposes of this rotation, for the purposes of this presentation, I'll be focusing on the host inflammatory response phase, of which we see that the potential therapies for this response phase are corticosteroids and immunomodulators. And now that we've discussed the pathogenesis, let us move forward into the clinical trials. But before doing so, we must identify um, and be able to define the patient populations that were, that were treated within the clinical trials and be able to grade them and, uh, and their clinical severity. To do this, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, or Null Scale, was used, which was created by the National Institutes of Health, um, specifically for the COVID population. Briefly, a score of one to two includes patients that are not hospitalized. A score of three to four includes patients that are hospitalized but do not require oxygen. A score of five, a score of five includes patients that are hospitalized and require supplemental oxygen. A score of six includes patients that are on non-invasive ventilation or high-flow nasal cannula. And a score of seven includes patients that have invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Finally, the last score of eight um, indicates the patients that have died. The first trial that looked at baricitinib in this patient population includes the Adaptive COVID-19 Treatment Trial 2, also known as the ACT-2 trial. This was an international, multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that enrolled 1,033 patients, um, identifying them as for the intervention of remdesivir, which was dosed at um, the normal dosing for up to 10 days, plus or minus baricitinib 4 milligrams once daily for up to 14 days. The primary outcome that was looked at in this study includes the time to recovery from day one to, to day 29. And this was defined as the score of a one to two, which would be recovery. Recall that one to two includes patients that are either not hospitalized all the way up to patients that may be hospitalized but do not require oxygen. In addition to a laboratory confirmed SARS-CoV-2 test, the patients that were included had an illness of any duration and may have um, had radiographic infiltrates revealed on imaging, an SpO2 of less than or equal to 94%, and also a score of four to seven. And this includes patients that are hospitalized, that may or may not require oxygen, all the way up to patients that have invasive mechanical ventilation, as well as ECMO. Exclusion criteria for this trial primarily were contraindications to the use of baricitinib. While we see that, that patients at baseline were similar, it's important to note that the racial makeup of these patients was not necessarily um, reflective of the distribution. We also see that the majority of patients were from North America, and for the disease severity, the majority of patients were in, had a score of four to five. Again, this is patients that are hospitalized and may or may not require supplemental oxygen. An additional thing to, um, that is important to note includes that the patients that were in the severe score, which would be a score of six to seven, um, the majority of the patients were in the score of seven, which is our invasive mechanical ventilation, 
or ECMO, and that included 111 patients. This is important to note for later as we come to trials that have been um, changed and adapted based off of the ACT2 trial. For the primary outcome, overall, baricitinib had a reduced time to recovery and throughout all the patients. As we can see in the graph here, the ACT2 trial also looked at time to recovery in specific uh, based off of the baseline score that they had. So for the, the y-axis, we can see that the number of days is listed, and for the x-axis, we see that the baseline score is listed. Among the patients, um, based off of their baseline score, it was statistically significant to see a, reduction, a time to recovery reduction in patients who had a score of six. Again, the score of six are patients that have non-invasive ventilation or high flow, high flow oxygen. It's also important to note that as we can see on the far left with the score of seven, the time to recovery exceeded 25 days and the, it was reported that they were unable to estimate this time to recovery. So we don't have any great information regarding patients that have invasive me mechanical ventilation or ECMO. While the ACT2 trial concluded that baricitinib plus remdesivir may, may improve time to recovery, we did see that there was a more pronounced effect in patients that had a score of six. However, there were, there were additional key limitations that we see. In addition to the patient population lacking racial and ethnic diversity, the patients that we saw only roughly 12% roughly of patients received post-randomization corticosteroids, which is now a standard of care for, our, for practice with our COVID-2 patients. We also see that the time to recovery for the score of seven was undetermined. So again, we have no information based off of patients that have invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Additionally, this trial was not designed to detect a, to detect a difference in mortality. So this trial led to further studies, specifically the COVE barrier trial. This was an international, multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that looked at patients with SARS-CoV-2 with an intervention of standard of care, which was determined by the local clinical practice, plus or minus baricitinib four milligrams once daily for up to 14 days. The primary outcome that they looked at included the progression um, of patients to a score of six or eight. So that's a progression to non-invasive ventilation or high flow oxygen, all the way up to um, eight, which is death. They had two patient populations that they looked at in this primary outcome, population one, which is identified as all patients that were randomly assigned at the time. So this is our intention to treat population. And population two, which are patients who had supplemental oxygen at baseline, but were not receiving corticosteroids. Key secondary outcomes that we see here are all-cause mortality at 28 days, as well as time to recovery, which was defined, as, defined similarly to the ACT2 trial. The inclusion criteria for the COVE barrier trial in, included the in, indicators for risk of progression, which were noted as greater than one inflammatory marker above the upper, nor, upper limit of normal. The exclusion criteria, um, again, similarly, were contraindications to baricitinib, but notably, we see that a score of seven, which is our invasive mechanical ventilation patients, or ECMO, were excluded from this trial. While the baseline characteristics for patients were similar across both groups, again, we do see that the racial makeup of the patients were not, were not reflective of the distribution of patients. In contrast to the ACT2 trial, we see that there were fewer patients in the North America, from North America in both groups. Additionally, in contrast to the ACT2 trial, we see that fewer patients received remdesivir, whereas the ACT2 trial, all patients received remdesivir. We also see that 
patients, uh, the majority of the patients did receive systemic corticosteroids. And again, in contrast to the ACT2 trial, where few patients received corticosteroids, which was a major limitation of the trial, we see the opposite here. Similarly to the ACT2 trial, we have patients with a disease severity that is um, indicated as moderate. So patients with a score, or four, score of four to five. And that includes patients, again, that are hospitalized and not requiring oxygen supplementation or hospitalized with oxygen supplementation. For the primary outcome of progression to a score of six or eight by day 28, um, as seen on the graph here, we have percent progression on the left, uh, on the y-axis, and the population indicated on the x-axis. The two, bar, the two bars to the far left trial indicate the population one, Again, those are patients who were included in the intention to treat group. And on population two, which are the two far right bar, bars that we see, those are included patients that were on supplemental oxygen but no corticosteroids. There were no significant, statistically significant differences for progression um, in either of these groups. Recall that a key outcome was all-cause mortality at 28 days, and they did find a statistically significant difference um, in all, overall in the groups for this, for this outcome. They further looked at all-cause mortality by subgroup, and that included patients who received corticosteroid use at baseline and patients who received remdesivir use at baseline. Focusing on the graph to the far left, we see percent mortality on the y-axis and whether or not the patient received corticosteroid use on the x-axis. For corticosteroid use at baseline, we see that whether or not they received corticosteroid use there was a statistically significant difference for those who received baricitinib. For remdesivir use, focusing on the, the graph to the far right, again with the percent mortality being on the y-axis and whether or not they received remdesivir on the x-axis, we see that there was only a statistically significant difference for patients who did not receive remdesivir use at baseline for the baricitinib arm. However, it is also important to note that these findings for all-cause mortality are a subgroup of a subgroup of analysis and have limitations when extrapolating it to other patient populations. A key secondary outcome that they had was time to recovery, time to recovery which was similar between both groups. The Cofarrier trial concluded that there was no difference in progression to, the group to, score, to a score of six to eight by day 28. And while they did find that baricitinib with the addition to standard of care may reduce mortality. As briefly discussed earlier, it is a limitation to the trial that it is a subgroup of a subgroup analysis. Additional limitations include that they did not include patients that are on invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Standard of care was defined by the clinical practice for COVID-19. There are trial amendments following the results that came up from the ACT2 trial and that the subgroup analyses were not powered to detect mortality, so it's hard to extrapolate again. This led to the covariar addendum trial, specifically for the patient population that was excluded from the covariar trial, which is the patients with mechanical ventilation or ECMO. This was also an international, multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that looked at standard of care with or without baricitinib, four milligrams once daily for up to 14 days, with the primary outcome being all-cause mortality at 28 days. Typically, when you look at an all-cause mortality for 28 days or when you're looking at an, a primary outcome, you want to ensure that you have the right population size to be able to detect a difference um, in the population. I'd like to make sure that we keep note of this because as we discuss further, um, you'll see that that was not the case. 
Key secondary outcomes include all-cause mortality at 60 days, as well as number of ventilation-free days. For the inclusion criteria, it mainly focused on, again, patients with invasive mechanical ventilation or patients on ECMO, and then similar to the COVID-barrier trial, patients that had indicated indicators for risk of progression. Exclusion criteria, exclu exclusion criteria similar to the COVID-barrier trial, were um, contraindications to those of bercinib. While patient base while patient characteristics were a bit similar at baseline, again, we see that the um, racial makeup was not reflective of the distribution um, of all patients. Similar to the COVID barrier trial, we see that few patients were from North America, few patients received remdesivir, and the majority of the patients received um, corticosteroids. A unique factor to this, um, these patients included that they there were a few patients that were on ECMO. Looking at the primary outcome of all-cause mortality at 28 days, focusing on the graph to the left, where we have percent mortality um, on the y-axis and whether the intervention on the x-axis, we see that it was statistically significant for the baricitinib arm. For the key secondary outcome, all-cause mortality at 60 days, again with percent mortality on the y-axis and the intervention on the x-axis, we see that for those that received baricitinib, Again, it remained statistically significant um, for their all-cause mortality. However, again, regarding the patients that were in this group, um, the patients from the ACT2 trial, they found that there was no statistically significant difference for that patient population and that they had only had um, 111 patients total. You'll see that we had 50 patients in each group for the primary outcome of all-cause mortality um, for 28 days, um, and it was because of this, we were unable to determine um, a limitation, which is having enough power um, to detect the difference that is appropriate for this patient population. For a key secondary outcome, we looked at ventilator-free days, and which was similar to between both groups. The Cove Barrier Addendum trial, um, in conclusion, found that baricitinib plus a standard of care may reduce 28-day mortality in patients um, that had invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO. For the limitations of this, for the limitations of this study, we see that preprint data. This is preprint data, so it has not been peer reviewed. Um, it has a small patient population, and that the standard of care was defined by local clinical practice for COVID-19. However, based on the findings of this trial, it would be difficult to extrapolate the data to patients that receive that, that have invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO. When comparing the safety outcomes among the baricitinib trials, um, it was difficult in that the ACT2 trial reported a lot, a, a more comprehensive list of um, adverse events, whereas the Cove Barrier trial and the Cove Barrier Addendum trial only focused on serious infection and venous thromboembolic uh, events. It has been raised as a concern that there has been increased infection risk in our mechanically ventilated patients. Our colleagues, Kirsten Kuda and Ryan Stevens, are working with our infectious disease colleagues to extrapolate the data for this patient population. This ultimately led to the FDA emergency youth authorization of baricitinib. And for this authorization, it is for COVID patients with, that are hospitalized, requiring supplemental oxygen, invasive mechanical ventilation, or on ECMO. And this is with or without remdesivir. However, after reflecting on the trials that we view today, is there really evidence for efficacy of baricitinib in this patient population, specifically those who have mechanical ventilation or ECMO? Let's review our institutional guidelines for baricitinib. For the criteria of use, 
It includes non-ICU patients and ICU patients. For those who are non-ICU patients, they include patients that are rapidly, have rapidly increasing oxygen requirements. And for ICU patients, it are those who are admitted to the ICU within 24 hours of admission and have a oxygen requirement of high flow nasal cannula, invasive or non-invasive mechanical ventilation, as well as those who have mechanical ventilation or cardiovascular organ support, which is required. For the dosing, it is four milligrams by mouth, once daily for up to 14 days or until hospital discharge, whichever comes first. For the exclusion criteria, we see that renal impairment and active tuberculosis are the main two exclusion criteria for this for baricitinib. And now that we've reviewed the baricitinib trials, I'd like to invite you to join me in the first audience response question. To participate, please text MayoRx at to 22333 to join, or you can respond at pollev.com forward slash MayoRx. A 45-year-old male with SARS-CoV-2 requiring oxygen via high-flow nasal cannula is started on dexamethasone, remdesivir, and baricitinib. Based on the current literature, which of the following is true regarding the use of baricitinib in this patient? And as results continue to come in, I'd like to agree with the majority of the audience in that for this patient, based on the current literature, B, improves time to recovery is the correct answer. A, improves mortality outcomes is incorrect because for this patient population in which we see high flow has a high flow nasal cannula, um, there were no improvements in mortality outcomes for this patient population. C is incorrect because we did not see in any of the trials that baricitinib increased duration of hospitalization. And for increased risk of adverse offense, events, D is incorrect because among the groups for, for, this patient, for these patient populations, adverse events was similar. This brings us to our next immunomodulator, which is tocilizumab. But prior to going in, let's recall the mechanism of action of this agent. Select the inhibitory mechanism by which tocilizumab exerts its immunomodulatory effects for in COVID-19. And as responses come in, I agree with the majority of the group that tocilizumab is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. Of course, again, this is the, in, this is the factor of the cytokine um, that is a major contributory to the hyperinflammatory response. To place baricitinib in the context of other immunomodulators, tocilizumab is the most studied agent in COVID-19, immunomodulatory agent in COVID-19. Initial studies were con conflicting um, on their effect. However, these were limited by low power, heterogeneous populations, and a lack of corticosteroid use among the patients. Again, this corticosteroids is a standard of care for severe COVID-19. That led to the recovery and the remap, tri remap cap trials, which are the largest studies conducted regarding tocilizumab in this patient population. The recovery trial was a subset of a larger study for looking at tocilizumab versus usual care. And in this patient population, they found that it reduced all-cause mortality at 28 days and had a shorter time to discharge. Limitations of this trial initially were that we could not define necessarily which patient tocilizumab was appropriate for, given that it was a subset of a larger study, as well as patients that were included in this criteria had a, a CRP of greater than or equal to 75 mg per liter. So we do not know in patients that do not have the elevated inflammatory markers whether or not tocilizumab would be of use. For the remap cap trial, 
tocilizumab was used in tocilizumab versus usual care was used in patients who were admit, admitted to the ICU within 24 hours of admission. They found that higher rates of in-hospital in survival occurred with patients that received tocilizumab, as well as a shorter duration of organ support. Together, these trials led to the FDA emergency youth authorization of tocilizumab. For the treatment of COVID-19, specifically in hospitalized patients, receiving systemic corticosteroids and requiring supplemental oxygen, invasive mechanical ventilation, or ECMO, which are the populations that were seen within the two trials. Now let's look at the tocilizumab institutional guideline that we have here at Mayo. For criteria for use, we see non-ICU patients as well as ICU patients. For non-ICU patients, it involves patients that have rapidly increasing oxygen needs as well as an with the potential of a elevated CRP of greater than or equal to 75 mg per liter. ICU patients admitted within 72 hours of admission with high flow nasal cannula, non-invasive mechanical ventilation, mechanical ventilation, or cardiovascular organ support. For dosing, the dosing is 8 mg per kg with a max of 800 mg IV infusion over one hour. Contraindications include immunosuppression or uncontrolled serious infections, given that tocilizumab can exacerbate these conditions. Also, baseline um, elevated ALT over AST, a low platelet count, and then pregnancy. While there are many COVID-19 treatment guidelines, here at Mayo, we follow the National Institutes of Health, which, is the which are the guidelines that we will be going through next. Recall that the these guidelines are specific to hospitalized patients. In the table, we see to the far left, the column is disease severity, and to the right, the panel's recommendation. For patients that do not require supplemental oxygen, which includes patients with a score of three or four, the panel recommends against the use of dexamethasone or other corticosteroids. For patients that require supplemental oxygen, again, this is our group score with a, five, a group with a score of five, you can use remdesivir or dexamethasone or remdesivir plus dexamethasone. For patients that require oxygen through, high flow, through a high flow device or non-invasive ventilation, you can use dexamethasone or remdesivir plus dexamethasone. And then we see for patients that have rapidly increasing oxygen requirements, you can add either baricitinib or tocilizumab to one of the above options, but they should not be used together. For patients that require invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO, which is our score of seven, Patients can receive dexamethasone, and if patients are admitted to the ICU within 24 hours of admission, they can receive dexamethasone plus IV tocilizumab. As you can see here, bisidinib is not listed among the agents for this patient population. The COVID, the COVID barrier addendum trial, which is a preprint as we discussed, um, could potentially be added to these guidelines upon further review. For future directions of bisidinib in COVID-19, as we discuss the limitations for each trial, we'd want to see patients that are diverse patient populations included in the groups, concomitant therapy of corticosteroids, specifically because this is a standard of care for our patients, risk stratification strategies, so patients that a larger randomized uh, placebo-controlled trial that has patients with invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO, and then patients that have cardiovascular disease, and with the primary outcome uh, of mortality which is large enough to detect the difference, whether or not these agents are working. And this brings us to our final audience response question. A 59-year-old male with SARS-CoV-2 is admitted to the intensive care unit for respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. They have an elevated CRP of 80 mg per liter. 
Should varicitinib be used in this patient? Again, to join, please text MAYO RX to 22333 or poly, join by polyv.com at MayoRx. My opinion is agreeable with the group that no baricitinib should not be recommended for this patient, specifically because we do not have a large enough data set as well as clarity on the role of baricitinib in, this, in these patients. However, we do have um, guidelines for our institution that make baricitinib an option um, for this patient population. So while um, I do, I would say no in this patient, um, it is an option for different patients. In summary, immunomodulators interrupt the signaling of cytokines implicated in the hyperinflammatory response of COVID-19. And recent, re recent peer-reviewed literature lacks evidence to support the use of baricitinib in the patients that have mechanical ventilation or have ECMO. And baricitinib, if considered for patients, should be considered on a case-by-case basis for hospitalized patients requiring supplemental oxygen. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.